Today, we've got a real treat uh, on Forward Guidance today, Joseph Wang, a former senior Fed trader. So when you think about uh, you know, the Federal Reserve buying trillions of dollars worth of bonds, that is what my next guest used to do. Joseph Wang, uh, his writings can be found on fedguide.com and the author of Central Banking 101. Joseph, welcome to Forward Guidance. Hey, Jack. Great to be here. I really love your show, and I'm really excited to be here today. The feeling is mutual, Joseph. We're recording this on the 16th of Thursday, uh, the day after Fed Chair Jay Powell announced uh, the Fed's decision to accelerate uh, its tapering of its asset purchases, which is uh, uh, so basically slowing down its, its quantitative easing. And then today, the ECB had some news, European Central Bank, and the, the Bank of England is, uh, is keeping us on our feet, too. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, could you just start by explaining your journey? How did you get into becoming a senior trader uh, for the Fed? So I began my career in a, in a kind of an unconventional fashion. I actually started out as a lawyer. So I graduated law school. I practiced law for a little bit, but I realized that really wasn't what I'm interested in. To be honest, being a lawyer, it, it's kind of just, you kind of like an expensive secretary, right? You're, you're basically writing reports and writing stuff, doing homework for a living, basically. But what I was really interested in, though, and I, I found out eventually was that I wanted to understand how the world worked and I wanted to work in, in financial markets. So, so I graduated around the time of the GFC. And so at that time, markets were kind of front and center in everyone's minds. And what was happening all over the world was just all you could hear. Lehman was going on there, Fed was doing QE and so forth. That sounded so exciting and interesting to me. So I decided to try to make that transition out of law and into the markets. So I, I had to go back to school to do that. I had a master's in econ, eventually worked out as a credit analyst. And after a while, I found a job on the open market desk at the Fed. Um, and so that's where I ended up. And the open market desk is actually an extraordinary opportunity to be able to learn about the markets. You are, in a sense, you're kind of behind the scenes in a way, because you get to hear and see things that most people don't. Like if you're just a market participant, all you see is what's happening on the screens, right? But if you are at the Fed, you have relationships throughout people with people throughout the financial system, whether or not it's like a bank or a primary dealer, giant corporate treasurer, money market fund, foreign central bank, foreign asset managers. So you get to speak with them and get their thought, thoughts as to what's happening. And they know that whatever they say, it's confidential. So they're very candid with you. And not just that, you get access to a lot of data that people otherwise wouldn't be able to. The Fed, of course, is a huge regulator and it has lots of confidential data. So being on the open markets desk, I think it was a great experience for me to be able to just understand um, how the financial system worked. So what's your base case for, for the next year? Obviously, very hard to predict. Uh, but do you think there, there's maybe some of the negative side, do you think there's some narrative that a lot of people are talking about you think it's, it's going to happen that you actually think is you're, you're unlikely? Like sort of what, what's your base case? My base case is that inflation is not transitory. There's enormous amounts of money. We basically trillions and trillions that we airdropped eventually makes it through to the system. Inflation becomes much higher. Fed, of course, one thing you want to keep in mind is that Fed is very old school. So people there, you know, they, they think of the world as it were, you know, when they were growing up for the past, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. So logically inflation is high, you hike rates. And I think that just crashes the markets. And so, and yeah, so that's my base case for, for next year. 
<laughs> but you know what? I think that would be a tremendous buying opportunity when it occurs. I think of it like a redux of 2018 quarter four. Yeah, this is the Powell's second pivot, right? So like we mentioned earlier, you pivoted in 2018, three rate hikes to a uh, couple of rate cuts. And now he's going from transitory to, you know what? Let's do some accelerated to quantitative tightening and let's hike some rates next year. So I think that might seem sudden, but I think if you think about it from the central bank perspective, it, it actually makes sense based upon what they're seeing. There's a really good speech by... Um, uh, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, uh, Broadbent, on this. And I know he's not at the Fed, but they, they see things similarly and they, they face similar problems. So if you are a central bank like the Fed and you see a lot of inflation in excess of your target, you, you want to do something about it. But there are other considerations as well. Um, for the Fed, for example, it has a dual mandate, both price stability and full employment. So when it's seeing high inflation, it looks at this and it says, well, a lot of the inflation is in goods, right? So as we know, there's been tremendous demand for goods in the past year, services not so much. The thing about goods is that it's a lot, goods prices are, um, they're volatile. So maybe car prices are high today, but maybe in a few months they fix their uh, chip shortage and suddenly car prices go down. So if you're a central bank and you're looking at this and you don't really want to adjust rates if maybe the problem will just go away in a few months without you doing anything. It's a volatile component. The second point when you look at this is that, you know, you can't really cause more um, chips to be built, factories to be built by raising rates. So what that actually does do is it destroys demand. Basically, it destroys jobs as a way to get inflation under control. So you go into a situation where you have to face a trade-off. You can, well, you can either well, high rates and get your inflation mandate under control or you can, and of course, hurts your full employment mandate, right? So there's a trade-off there. So it's not too clear. But if you listen to the Powell press conference yesterday, he talked a lot about, you know, quit rates high or the economic compensation index, uh, employment compensation index going higher. So wages going higher, basically. So what that signals to a central bank is that not just that prices are high rising, not just inflation, but we're also very close to full employment. And so that means that both my mandates are met. So that green lights me to hike rates. There's no longer a trade-off. And so that's why I think it was kind of a clear reason for him to pivot. But one other thing you have to keep in mind is that the central bank, it acts very slowly. Um, the Fed acts very slowly because it's a it's like a it's a, like a gorilla so small things the small changes by the fed just kind of shake markets not just here but throughout the world if you think back at the 2013 taper tantrum the biggest the biggest losses were in the emerging markets and you know that's far away from the us but the fed is the dollar is very much a global currency it's what everyone uses so it has to act slowly and second it doesn't really want to frighten the markets so when Paulo was going to signal his U-turn, he did it, you know, weeks in advance and he had all his lieutenants go out and say the same thing. So when you keep those two things in mind, you, you, what Paulo did yesterday was, I think, was logical. He does, he does a pivot, but he pivots in a way that market is not surprised by first giving out notice and second, by pestling in three rate hikes next year, which is exactly what the market is pricing. 
when you go and you meet the market, there's much less of a surprise. So there's going to be less volatility. And uh, which is which is good. Joseph, in the Federal Reserve started quantitative easing uh, during the great financial crisis. Can you explain why they did uh, that policy of quantitative easing? There was something, uh, you know, uh, typically they can raise rates to tighten credit, uh, lower rates to loosen credit. Why was it that they had to resort to this other thing? Um, because the other, they just you know ran out of options with rates. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So back then, so the Fed usually thinks about the world through the lens of interest rates. The way they think about becoming more accommodative is lowering interest rates, and the way they think about being more uh, less accommodative is raising rates. So the Fed traditionally controlled rates through its levers on the overnight rate. So it would adjust the overnight rate, which it thinks of as the federal funds rate, up or down. But during the crisis, the Fed had a problem. It already lowered rates to zero, but you know the economy was still not doing well. So what do you do then? So what the Fed decided was it would try to lower rates, not just in the overnight segment, but throughout the term curve. So it came up with two, what was then unconventional policy, but today, you know, pretty common. One is called forward guidance. And what that means is the Fed committing that they will not raise the overnight rate for, you know, X period of time or under until certain conditions are met. So although the Fed only technically controls the overnight rate, if it's saying, I promise that I will not raise the overnight rate for five years, then essentially it's lowering the rates all the way up to five years out. Right. So that was one thing. The other thing is, as you mentioned, quantitative easing, and that's just going further out the curve. So the Fed obviously can't promise to never raise rates for like 20 years, right? <laughs> if they did, people wouldn't believe them. Um, so what they what they did was they went out and they bought a lot of longer dated treasuries. And the goal of that, again, the Fed thinks of the world through the lens of rates is to lower uh, longer dated rates or term premium, as they would say, uh, to try to basically make uh, make the economic conditions more accommodative. So that was the whole purpose of that. Um, then it was unconventional. Now it seems like everyone's doing it. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I have obviously have a soft spot for forward guidance is the name of the podcast. We'll talk about <laughs> that name. later. But thank you. Thank you. Um, quantitative easing, Joseph, is just something that I feel like the more I try and learn about it, the further a, a chance to understand it. It's like, a, the, you know, it's like Sisyphus. It's just the more confused I am. I'll give you an example of one of the many things that confuses me about quantitative easing is you say that the goal of quantitative easing is to lower the term premium. In other words, to sort of flatten the curve, lower long-term bond yields. That makes sense. You buy a uh, you know, a 30-year treasury bond or something, an ETF that owns it, like TLT, yields will go down. Bonds up, yields down. But how come treasury yields tend to rise during quantitative easing and fall during quantitative tightening like we're having now? Not that we're doing quantitative tightening, but we're slowing QE. So it's, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a really good point. I think there's a, I think the way that the Fed would look at this is they would use the idea of term premium. So let's say the term premium is, um, let's say we're looking at the 10-year at the 10-year segment, it would be the spread between 10-year treasuries and the 10-year overnight index swap. So the overnight index swap would basically be the market's expectation of the path of policy. And the term premium would be the difference between the 10-year treasury and that OIS. And so usually what happens is when the Fed stops quantitative easing, that, that term premium does actually widen a bit. So, you know, 
but I, I, I get that the nominal rates level does go down. And I think of that really as kind of more of a, a risk off move. So you have a lot of people in the market who just say, you know, Fed is buying assets. We got to be all be all in the equity markets, right? It's risk on. And when they think of the Fed is not there, they think of that as risk off. And so there's kind of this rotation out of equity markets. In a sense, you can think about it as having more risk in the market. And so more of a flight to, to safety of the treasuries. That's how I think of it anyway. When QE was first rolled out, as you mentioned, there was just tremendous amounts of confusion. You had a lot of important people coming out and telling you we're going to have high for inflation. You had people saying, buy gold. But then again, those people always say buy gold. So <laughs> it's never a bad time to buy gold. Um, I, think, I think the way that I think about quantitative easing is that I think of it as a change in the, not so much in the quantity of money, but in the composition of money. And so the Fed is definitely printing more money but it's using that money to buy treasury securities. So in a sense, it's kind of printing $100 to buy $100. I think what people should realize is that in the financial system, there, there are a lot of different types of money. And what you think of as money really depends on who you are or where you are in the financial system. So if you're retail, like, you know, like myself, then money for you, it's a, it's a deposit at a bank. And it's very safe and it's very liquid. It's guaranteed by the FDIC. Um, so, you know, that's very common. And I could also use currency as well. But if, and if, let's say if you're a bank, then for you, money is deposits at the Fed, which people call reserves, which uh, in a sense are digital cash, basically. It's a CBDC. But if you are a like someone with a lot of money, a wealthy individual, someone who has more assets, more than the 250,000 FDIC, see insurance or institutional investor, money for you is treasuries, super liquid, credit risk-free, some interest rate risk, but you can hedge that. So because, because all the, <clears throat> excuse me, because all those things are basically forms of money, when the Fed actually is doing quantitative easing, it's just replacing one form of money with another, with the goal of you know, lowering interest rates. So. In the sense, even though it's labeled quantitative easing, it's not so much, it's not that, you know, so increasing the amount of money, so forth, it's just the composition. But that does have very real effects in the financial system. So if you're looking at it from an investor point of view, let's say once upon a time, investors got to hold treasuries, but now they can't do that because the Fed bought it and instead gave them a deposit in their bank. So I sell the treasury to the Fed. The Fed takes it, and at the end of the day, I have some deposits in my bank account. The problem is that maybe I need return. Maybe I'm an investment manager. I, I need to have some kind of return. Or maybe that I can't take bank credit risk. I can't just be lending JP Morgan a billion dollars overnight, um, which is what putting money in the checking account is. So I have to go and I have to do something else. So maybe I go and buy treasuries farther out the curve to have a little bit more return. Maybe I go and I buy agency MBS. Maybe I buy corporate bronze, maybe I buy Apple stock. And so there's this huge rebalancing that takes place simply because uh, a lot of, of non-banks are forced to hold low yielding credit assets, which are bank deposits. So that kind of filters through and I think inflates the financial markets, which is what we see so clearly happen in the 10 years. And I think that's part of the reason why there's such a close relationship between the Fed's balance sheet and, and the S&P, as you noted. Mm. And so before quantitative easing, there's, let's say, a trillion dollars worth of treasuries that 
uh, uh, primary dealer banks have after quantitative easing, uh, they have a trillion dollars worth of bank reserves in exchange for a trillion dollars, which is now on the Federal Reserve balance sheets. What can they do with it and what can't they do with it? So they can buy Apple with it. Uh, They can buy. No, they can't. But they they can't lend money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, this is this is kind of complicated. So we have this monetary system, which I think of as a two tiered monetary system. And so you have kind of two low, two kinds of money. Oh, you have different kinds of money. So, um, so banks hold reserves as money. Reserves are bank. Reserves are what money are to banks. And non-banks like you and I, we hold bank deposits as, as money. So, since this is block works, I want to do a crypto uh, analogy. So, please, <laughs> let's say you have you know dollars you deposit it into Tether, and Tether issues Tether coins to you, right? So, that's how it works, right? So in a sense, yeah, yeah. When, <laughs> when, when the Fed, so when I sell treasuries to the Fed, the Fed creates reserves, which is a CBDC, and deposits it in the Fed account of a commercial bank, of my commercial bank. And the commercial bank in turn issues me bank deposits, kind of like the way Tether issues people Tether. So when the Fed actually does QE, the reserves in the banking system increase but so do the deposit liabilities. That's just kind of how it works because like I am not eligible to hold uh, reserves. I have to hold bank deposits and in turn my bank holds reserves. So, but you touched on a really, really good point. And that is when you increase the amount of reserves in the banking system, you know, what are banks gonna do with all those reserves? Can they just go and buy Apple stock? Technically they, they can, but in practice they won't. The thing is banks are very highly, highly regulated entities. I mean, would you want to deposit your money in the bank that went out and just bought a bunch of Apple stock or Tesla or things like that? So they're super highly regulated. And so what happens is that um, they end up when they have a lot of reserves they're, they're holding and they're very low yielding. Right now, there are five basis points. They go out and they buy treasuries. And so that's kind of one of the things that's putting a lot of pressure on the treasury market right now. I mean, pushing yields lower. Mm-hmm. Fed did a monstrous, monstrous amount of QE. Commercial banks have a ton of reserves. They want to, you know, hold something that more yields more than five basis points, and so they're rebalancing too. They rebalance out of reserves and into treasuries, and you can see this in the public filings. Commercial banks in the U.S. have increased their treasury holdings by a few hundred billion, and you know, if you look at the uh, their press conferences, they they say they're going to keep buying. So that's a that's part of the reason why I think that um, you see the treasury yields fairly low, even though we have a lot of inflation. So uh, I'm going to name a list of things that QE is directly or indirectly causes or correlated with me. And I want you to interrupt me when I, when I say something that's wrong. Okay. So QE lowers interest rates. It it, uh, lowers the term premium. It tightens, uh, Sorry, yeah, it uh, reduces credit spreads. Uh, it reduces spreads on mortgage-backed securities and the like. And that has an indirect, not direct, of course, but it indirectly benefits the stock market. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think. I mean, at, at the end of the day, someone is going to look at, oh my God, treasury yields are so low, spreads are so narrow in the corporate debt market. I'm just going to buy myself some Apple. And to how... What are the knock-on effects? To the extent that there are negative effects of quantitative easing, what are the negative ones? I think 
quantitative easing works really well in a, in, a, in a time when you just have zero rates. But I think when we start raising rates, though, I think it becomes a bit more troublesome. And um, I'll, I'll think about it in, in two ways. One is that you think that we have a lot of excess liquidity in the system, uh, but the truth is the market just kind of adapts to that, right? It becomes, it just kind of expands and adapts. And so in a sense, there is no excess liquidity. People just, the market just adapts to a different equilibrium. So when you start shrinking your balance sheet or something like that, um, sometimes things break. You can think about that happening uh, last time in, uh, was it 2019? So the market kind of got used to having an enormous amount of liquidity in the repo market, just funding all these overnight loans. And it just it expanded, you know, liquidity was cheap. So the repo market just continued to grow and grow and grow because while I, there's so much Fed created liquidity there, you can just keep borrowing. And then when you start want to take that back, you realize, hey, you know what, actually that's not excess liquidity. Everyone is kind of all used to living at that kind of living in a system with abundant liquidity. So when you, when you, when you draw it out, things break. It's like a line. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie Margin Call, but they're talking to the senior director, managing director. They're like, oh, you make so much money. And the person's like, look, you, you spend, you spend. <laughs> in your pocket, that, right? Like you get used to the lifestyle. You're a trader, you know, uh, leveraging things 50 to one, you know, buying super uh, cheap debt. Uh, you get, you, they get used to it yeah. and then it's, they get tightened. So now, uh, Joseph, now that Again, I don't, I don't think it's quantitative tightening, but there's an acceleration of the reduction of asset purchases, which is like reducing quantitative easing. Uh, what are the uh, net effects of that, uh, other than the fact that it sort of preps, primes them to raise rates, which is where we get to the real, the real yeah, fireworks? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. What, what is uh, the net effect of the, the uh, reduction in uh, uh, asset purchases? And specifically, you, you know, you've seen, you've been on the desk when you was. Uh, you got to tap in your shoulder and say, "Hey, we're buying we're buying fewer assets this month than than last month." Uh, what does that What does that look like? How does that change market conditions? Uh, yeah. So, when you think about, let's say, a CB going out and buying treasuries in the market, that that's one, how much they buy a month. That's one thing. But another thing you have to keep in mind is just how big the market is. So, let's say, for example, um, a CB is buying fifty billion dollars uh, in in treasuries, let's say a year. Okay. What if there's only a hundred billion dollars outstanding, then that's a huge impact, right? But what if the CB went and bought 50 billion and the, and then the sovereign just issued another 50 billion. So at the end of the day, it's still a hundred billion dollars in treasuries outstanding to the public. So in that sense, it seems like nothing's changed, right? So when, when you think about effects of QE or QT, you, you have to think about um, just how does that affect the amount of supply of treasuries that's going out into the public? What's happening right now is that even though the Fed is stepping back in its buying, the treasury is also going to step back in its issuance. It's going to step back a lot. I think projections are about cutting coupon issuance by maybe a trillion dollars next year. Now, this is from a very high base, so I mean, we're still issuing a lot of debt. So even as the Fed is reducing its buying, the treasury is reducing its issuance. And so. To say that the Fed is just doing QT, I, I'm not sure from that from that just that narrow angle it, it really matters that much. Now, looking beyond next year, uh, sure, sure, but you know it, it's not easy to say what what ish, debt issuance will be beyond. We could have more stimulus plans, or we could have stimulus plans that um, 
you know, don't materialize. So, so just narrowly looking at the impact of QT, I, I don't, I don't see it being a big deal next year. But I really, the big deal really comes to, as you mentioned, it's it's the rate hikes that that it suggests. Yeah. So the last time uh, the Fed attempted to hike rates, and I believe it did so with forward guidance, but a tight saying we're going to raise here, this, 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 and so the the market could anticipate it. That resulted in the ultimate, uh, not a Santa rally, but a, a Santa sell off. Yes. Um, yes. What are the impacts of hiking interest rates? And also uh, a little wonky, but like how. Tell us, t- tell us about how it's now done by uh, uh, like uh, RRP rather than like changing the reserves because there are too many reserves. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. So when when the Fed raises rates, so what they're really one, one of the ways. So, uh, so they're adjusting the overnight rates, but another way you can think about this is they're basically decreasing the market value of treasuries. And to the extent that you think of treasuries as a form of money, they're basically taking money outside of the system. So if the Fed says, I'm going to start hiking rates today and I'm going to hike on this rate path for the next few years, then the shorter data treasuries begin to sell off because they begin to price in that rate hike. Right. And so if you are, you know, if you own these things and you're seeing your, you know, your, your broker account decrease, if you're an asset manager, you're seeing your AUM decrease. So you're based, the Fed is in no sense, it's taking money outside of the system and that has all sorts of implications. If you're highly levered, maybe something breaks and you have to sell something else to uh, to make up for that loss. If, let's say, um, you, you're some kind of risk parity portfolio guy, you know, you, maybe you have to sell some equities to rebalance and so forth. So if you have a financial system like we do that's highly levered and you just kind of start imposing losses on it like that, if they're slow, the system can handle it. But if they become large or if they're sudden, then the system can handle it and then things break which is, I think, what happened in, in 2018. So, you know, Powell was quite determined to hike rates. I remember the dot plot in 2018 saying that they would have three rate hikes, I think, in 2019. And then in January, he turned around and was like, maybe we're going to cut rates. So um, that, that's what happened. The way that this works today is, is very different from a, from a plumbing perspective than it did in the past. So once upon a time, the Fed controlled rates through uh, adjusting, well, the quantity of reserves in the system. So today we have about $4 trillion in reserves. Maybe pre-crisis we had maybe like $30 billion or something like that. So it's a huge difference. And the Fed kind of understood how many reserves the banking system needed. And so it would just kind of adjust it by a few hundred billion here and there. And based upon the Based upon that adjustment, they could control the federal funds rate, which is the which is a market interbank market for reserves between banks. So, if back then, if let's say you're J.P. Morgan, you wanted to borrow some reserves, you would go to the federal funds market, you'd borrow it overnight, and you would return it next day. So, that the federal funds rate back then was the policy rate for the Fed. Well, it it still is, but not really. But so it still is. So you would control it by by basically controlling the quantity of reserves in the system through small adjustments. Post-crisis, that became impossible. Just trillions of reserves, there's no way you can control it through the quantity of it. So what happens is that the Fed kind of has a quarter system where at the very bottom, it's offering to borrow basically unlimited quantities from the market at this set rate. Today, that's five basis points. That's a reverse repo facility. So that reverse repo facility is basically what's keeping a floor under all rates today. 
if you can lend risk-free to the Fed at five basis points, then there's no reason why you would ever be willing to accept lending at a lower rate. And so that's kind of today how, how the market works for when it raises rates. Um, the federal funds market still exists, but if you look at it very closely, you know, it's kind of prints at the same, same price every day. It's, you know, it's basically a fake market. Oh, wow. Wow. So when people say we're targeting, when the, when the Federal Reserve says we're targeting the federal fund rate of blank to blank, you're saying that's kind of a fake market and that, that's only a sh- sideshow to what's really going yeah, on. Yeah, it's the reverse repo facility that's really pushing, because that's the, that's the rate faced by everyone in the market, right? So, okay, there's some frictions there involved. But if the Fed were to say, I want to raise rates to 5%, now I can go and put my money into a market money market fund, which then lends the reverse repo facility at five basis points, right? So that's how rates, that's how my opportunity cost is shifted. But I can never go and lend into the federal funds market because I'm not a bank and I don't have a Fed account. So there's no reason, like I can't lend it. That doesn't exist to me. What I face is indirectly the reverse repo facility, right? Okay, and... Uh, the reverse repo facility. I thought the reverse repo facility was new. Like, or is that something else? Uh, no, that's the repo facility. Uh, there's two things here going on. So there's a reverse repo facility where the market can lend to the Fed. Okay. And there's a repo facility where the market can borrow from the Fed. So it's kind of like a corridor system. The Fed is basically laying a groundwork to shift away from uh, federal funds rate, SOFR, as as their reference rate. So. So central banking 101, if you have a resonance rate, you better have a way to control it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be uh, embarrassed sooner or later. Now, having the reverse repo facility at the bottom of the range and a repo facility at the top, it gives the Fed complete control of the repo market, which means they can make SOFR uh, a ref- their target rate in the future. Mm-hmm. So looking at the infamous dot plot from yesterday, you can see that the December 2021 projections of what the federal funds will be in 2022, 2023, 2024, and then the longer term, which uh, I don't, yeah, it's just interesting. So, so much higher uh, than the December 2020 FOMC meeting, where I believe uh, Fed Chair Powell announced his flexible average inflation target. Yeah. You noted in your book, which I, you know, I may just put <laughs> time, Central Banking 101, that the Federal Reserve's, that the dot plots have a, I'm paraphrasing, a so-so uh, uh, um, record of actually predicting uh, hikes. And I believe there's a, there's a chart which shows uh, like the, the implied rate versus the Fed funds rate versus the actual, what the Fed funds rate actually ended up being. And I think Every single day over the past decade has been a time when the effective federal funds rate was was lower than what the Fed funds the dot plot said it said it would be. So, uh, yeah, do, do you think that the Federal Reserve will uh, will will hike it? And sort of how are you weighing on the different pressures of you know inflation on one hand um, and and then tanking the economy and tanking the stock market on the other? So, I think what's really interesting in this dot plot is that and what the market is pricing. Market is pricing in a terminal funds rate about, I think, one and a half. And that's lower than what the Fed is pricing, which is like two and a half. So, like you said. And sorry, Joseph, uh, the, the terminal funds rate, uh, can you explain what that is? Sure. So, uh, Fed is eventually, uh, okay, so Fed is eventually going to hike and basically when they're going to stop or when they think that, according to their models, for example, uh, when is, uh, what's uh, about based on the, 
economy's capacity, just where would the funds rate be, basically? And when when inflation is at their target and people are at full employment. So it's kind of what they think of based on their models. And if you look at what they think is, it, well, one, one you want to keep in mind is that it's so much lower than it used to be. Right now, they think that economy at full employment, stable inflation is about 2.5% Fed funds rate. It, you know, just a couple of decades ago, that was like 4 or 5%, 6%. So that rate has gone down. I guess what they would say is our star has gone down, which is how they think about the world. Um, what I think that is really different about this time around than other times than the last taper tantrum was that during the last taper, then the market was kind of pricing in a very, very high terminal funds rate. So they were thinking that the Fed wouldn't stop hiking until it got to 4%. Now, 4%... That's, that's, that was not something the market could handle, and so it kind of puked. But this time around, the market is only pricing in a terminal a kind of um, 1.5%. And as many people, including what you were just noting before we started, there seems to be some slight inversion there where the market is actually going down. So the market is very much thinking that this is going to be a very shallow rate has high call, and the Fed is going to have to start cutting again. And that has enormous implications for risk assets, because if the Fed is really just going to hike, you know, one and a half and then start cutting, that's really not really high. You know, you don't really have to be afraid of the Fed uh, taking the punch bowl away, so to speak. Now, whether or not that actually happens, I, I don't really know. I think that there's reason to think that maybe inflation will be a lot, a lot higher and maybe stickier than they think. Now, we've had some prominent commenters come thinking about, come talk about this, but you know, one of the ways that you can think about this is just to look at the quantity of money in the system. Now, by, by this, I'm not just talking about, let's say, you know, bank reserves or something like that. But what happened in the past couple of years is that the Fed and Treasury working together basically created a lot of money. It's not changing the composition of money. It's creating new money outright, like helicopter money style, the way that people thought Huey worked a lot of 10 years ago. And how, how Joseph, how, how is what happened over the past two years, how is that different than just QE, just a swap? It's completely different. Because when you realize that treasuries are a form of money, then you also come to see that deficit spending, the issuing of treasury debt, is basically like printing money. It's like the government goes and buys tanks and gives them, let's say, treasuries instead. $100 in treasuries is just like a $100 bill that pays interest. So when you, when you have this insight, you realize that deficit spending is printing money out of thin air going to buy things. That's obviously inflationary. You look at what we did to, for the past couple of years, we did it in the trillions, in the trillions, just giving it away. And you can actually see that in the, in the banking data. If you, look at a, if you look at, let's say, checking account deposits by, um, held by households, You'll see that just over the past two years, it basically went vertical. There's like a true two and a half trillion dollar surge in amount of uh, basically money people hold in their checking accounts. And that's all from fiscal spending. It's from stimulus checks. It's from PPP loans and so forth. So that's just basically helicopter money that just dropped into the public. So I have trouble understanding why, how inflation could have ever been transitory. And would you keep in mind that the U.S. did this to a monster scale, like 25% of GDP. Other countries did this as well, not nearly to the same extent, but they still did it. And so when you have this happening on a global scale, 
obviously, you know, you have to have prices rise. What, you, what I would, what I would keep in mind is that when you create this money, it, it doesn't just disappear; it circulates in the economy. Eventually, it will be spent, either rebalanced into, let's say, risk assets like equities, or it can go and buy cars and houses and so forth. And so, it kind of pushes up the prices of everything. And that insight that what the treasury is doing, or the treasury as really the real money printer rather than the Fed, I think is what's really different between this time and the post-GFC, where the Treasury did some you know, deficit spending, fiscal stimulus, but nothing, nothing approaching what we do now. So that is something that you know, will probably eventually funnel through to the economy. And to the extent that kind of throws away the Fed's forecasts away, uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they really have, let's say, the guts to do what, let's say, Larry Summers or former FRB and my president Dudley saying says having, let's say three, four, maybe even 5% uh, interest rates. Ooh. So uh, Joseph, just to, just to make it clear when uh, quantitative easing by itself is an asset swap, the federal reserve swaps bank reserves, which it creates yep. with treasuries. Um, and, but can't you think of a issue uh, the treasury issuing bills, tre- treasury bills, notes, yep. bonds as an asset swap too, where it's getting bank reserves and the uh, private sector banks, they are getting treasuries. So I get those two things. What if you combine those two, th- combine those two things and what do you get? That's a really good point. So let's say I'm a treasury and I'm issuing a treasury note and you buy it with a bank deposit. So at the end of the day, you have treasury notes, right? And so it's kind of like an asset swap in that sense. And so you swapped your bank deposits for treasuries. But here's the thing though, when, I, when the treasury takes that money, it doesn't just hold it, it spends it out. So at the end of the day, the banking system has, someone has that deposit that you, that you, that you spent, it's still out in the system, but you now also have a treasury. So overall, the amount of money in the financial system increases. So that's, that's, what, that's what makes it different from say QE. Got it. So uh, Treasury and Fed working together, that is inflationary. Oh, absolutely. It's mo- mostly about Treasury. The Fed, the Fed does its assets up and that kind of jiggles up financial prices, assets. But Joseph, are you just being humble? You're like, when I when I bought those tens of trillion, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't really, I'm not that important. <laughs> Based on what you said a few minutes ago, it sounds like the most poignant question to ask is not, is the Federal Reserve willing to hike rates? But will hiking rates be successful in taming inflation? Based on your writings, it sounds like you think the answer might be no. Explain why you think the answer might be no, and also how that would just be a huge uh, paradigm shift for monetary policy, inflation, and it would just sort of change, change everything, asset prices, the economy, everything. So when people think about, yeah, that's a really good point. I think I, I think that it could change everything. So when think of when people think about hiking rates, think think about you know slowing down inflation, right? How does that work? Well, you know you hike rates. Maybe instead of buying something, I'm going to go. Interest rates are two percent. So instead of going and buying a new car, I put it in my bank account. I earn two percent. So it dampens down demand. I think that's what uh, I think that's how it used to work, and it would work except for one very very important fact. Now, the role of the government today is much, much bigger than it was, let's say, 30 years ago. So for, for most of the history of our, of our country, the government is, was very small. Private sector was huge, right? So 
when you're dampening, when you're raising interest rates, maybe the private sector um, doesn't want to spend as much, doesn't want to borrow as much, so economic activity becomes more subdued. But when you will have a huge public sector, which is what we do, we have today, in fact, the federal deficit is expected to be a trillion dollars this year, next year, next next year, and basically for the foreseeable future. So the largest borrower in, in the country is the federal government, right? So does the federal government care if it has to borrow at 5%, 6%, 9%, 10%? Not at all, not even a little bit. So when you do that, so when you raise rates, you don't dampen down economic activity as much as it used to because so much of the economy consists of someone who doesn't really care about that. Now, not just this though, there's, there's, a, there's a couple other angles to this. So if you are the largest borrower in the world, you have to pay interest, right? And how do you go about paying interest? Well, you, do you raise taxes? Oh no, you don't raise taxes. That's what people used to think. Now you just borrow some more. <laughs> so when you, have, when you have government borrowing that's increasing, and at higher interest rates, what they do is they would just have to borrow even more, which means basically printing more treasuries. So the Fed actually, in the sense, kind of made things worse. And um, the way that I look at it is that another way you can view quantitative easing, it's kind of like a big debt management operation where we're thinking about the Fed and the Treasury together. If the Fed, is, if the Treasury, oh, let's just say, if the government issued a 10 year Treasury, at one and a half percent, right? They're locking in their coupon, their interest rate payments for 10 years. But when you do QE though, it's that asset swap dynamic, as you mentioned before, there's no more treasuries. Instead, you're owing reserves to the banking sector. The thing is reserves is an overnight loan basically, right? So it's basically interest rates that change according to what the Fed's fund rate is. <clears throat> so when the Fed were to raise interest rates by like 5%, well, then those reserves, those overnight loans, they're going to have to pay 5%. So you're, you're increasing the federal government's interest rate costs. If there was no QE and you were just doing 10-year treasuries, then your coupon inter payments, your interest rate payments wouldn't have changed no matter what, when the, what rates the Fed was raising it to. But now it does directly. So that's another aspect. Now, the third aspect, though, and this is really wonky, so I'm not going to talk about it a lot. But the way that banks used to work was that a bank would kind of borrow money. Well, okay, not borrow money. So banks create money, but they also have to manage their liabilities in a way so to meet their outflows. And so um, let's say I have someone that has a deposit at my, my bank for $100. I want to make it so that they won't suddenly withdraw. Then, then I might have to go out and borrow the money back. So maybe I'll say lock it into CDs and so forth, just to control my outflows. Now, banks don't really have to do that anymore. So the, the, the actions of the federal government and the, and the Fed over the past two years have just kind of filled the banking system with deposits so that the banks don't really have to compete for funding anymore. Almost all their funding is 0% retail deposits. So when that happens and you raise rates, banks mechanically have a wider interest rate margin and so the mechanically they're more inclined to create credit so to create money so to speak so what i'm saying through these three points just the larger the uh, large presence of the public sector large amounts of overnight public sector debt and uh 
different funding structures of the commercial banks is that the increasing rates now has this kind of different quality that might actually be more inflationary because the higher the rates are, you're just kind of not dampening economic activity so much, but increasing the amount of money that's going to be printed. Now, to the story, there's a countervailing story, and I think it's worth talking about, is that when you raise rates, though, you kind of, like I mentioned before, you're kind of destroying the financial markets in a sense. And so there's kind of two dynamics playing playing out. There's a real economy dynamic and a financial economy dynamic. If rates were at 5%, I would expect the markets to crash. Maybe that overrules the former dynamic. But, you know, it's not easy to say because not everyone is involved in financial markets. And um, so, you know, it's not, it's connected, but not, not, not exactly completely connected. Yeah, so there are two channels. There's the borrowing channel and then the financial channel. The borrowing channel, I think I get, you know, because banks, commercial banks, not the Fed, not treasuries, they can create their own deposits. They'll never run out of their own deposits. That's not the problem. The problem is just that no one will want their deposits because the bank is going to go going to go under. Right. Yeah. It's a. Yeah. So regulation as well. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Fair fair enough. So they they can uh, increasing rates causes lending to be more profitable. That is a problem of, of lowering rates is that it makes uh, lending very unprofitable. That's what we've seen in Europe, in Japan, and in the United States. And that's why you've seen, you know, perhaps that, that is a reason that we have disinflation and a, a crimping of economic growth. You're saying that raising rates will be, you know, stimulative uh, via the borrowing channel. Normally, though, it is contractionary via the financial channel. For reasons I don't fully understand, I, I know that they—I just know that they are. Why are you saying that they that they won't be as contractionary now? So traditionally, a bank makes a, creates money, makes a loan, and so um, what actually happens is it earns a spread between its funding costs and its loan asset. So um, let's say uh, LIBOR is at two percent, so maybe I issue a CD at two percent, and then I make a loan at five percent. I earned that 3% spread. So when the Fed raises rates, um, there's less demand for, for loans because people are facing in a higher uh, a higher borrowing cost. For the bank, the spread doesn't really change because they match their funding liability, their funding costs and their asset costs. It's the spread that they make. What's different today is that there's just so many more deposits in the system, trillions more, that the banks have kind of a, funding costs that's locked in at, at zero. So there's there's no more money markets. There's no more wholesale funding markets. It's all just retail deposits. And so in that context, what you do, what happens when you raise rates is you're just mechanically widening the interest rate margins that banks receive, just making it more and more profitable for them to create loans or to buy assets like treasuries. Basically, you're making it more profitable for them to create money and so that is inflationary and, you know, pro-cyclical. But the financial channel of what happens in rates, rate hikes, I think of as that channel that I mentioned earlier, and that when you raise rates, you're basically destroying the fixed income value and the fixed market value of fixed income assets, taking money outside the system in the form of uh, asset values or net worth. So that's also a very prominent channel. Usually that channel is 
over the past 10 years at least is becoming more important simply because the financialization of our economy and asset, man asset markets are so much bigger. So between the two, which becomes, which becomes more dominant, I'm not sure. I'm thinking that the Fed doesn't want to crash the markets. So if we do things, if you do rate hikes slowly so that the market can adjust and there's no crash, I think the borrowing channel becomes more important. Mm. But if we crash, though, that, you know, that, that kind of changes everything because market crashes really affect sentiment and wealth. That really hurts the economy a lot. It's very, very deflationary. And, and what constitutes a crash? I know in December of 2018, that was you know, roughly about a 20% crash that caused a, a Powell pivot. Uh, you know, early on in the pandemic, you know, if we had maybe a 15 or 10% crash when they were super, super dovish, they would have, uh, that would have caused them to, but do you, don't you think the equity market is running a little bit, a little bit hot? Um, uh, with the, the Federal Reserve, they, they wouldn't bat an eye if it went down five, 10%, right? Yeah, no. So the way you would figure, find out about this is to read their financial stability reports. That's, that's kind of, their company line. So they, you know, Powell said yesterday as well, asset values are elevated. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that he immediately kind of tightened up his tie a little bit. I noticed that too. I noticed that too. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I he's getting scared. Like, Please don't crash. <laughs> yeah. And I, I noticed that and I had this, that exact same thought. I'm like, Jack, you're so superficial. Like you're not, you're just a narrative guy. You've got to focus on the data, the charts. Like, you know, you can't tell, you can't share that with Joseph, but I'm really glad that you noticed it too. <laughs> no, it was so obvious. It's like he was scared. I hope markets don't sell off because I'm saying this. <laughs> but no, I think they would be fine. But I think it. I think the point is that sometimes crashes are disorderly, and you go down ten percent, maybe you go down twenty percent. I think that there is a Fed put there somewhere where the strike is. I don't know. Uh, it's going to be a lot lower than we are today, though. What if Joseph? The only way to curb inflation is to crash the equity market crash as in a you know a slow orderly decline of 30 percent over a year and a half not 30 percent in a month um and you know cr credit spreads they're very low they could go higher what, what if uh to, to curb inflation credit spreads have to go higher uh you know what what if things that the federal reserve over the past year and a half is used to seeing as a problem because they're trying to stimulate the economy now they're saying we want we want to Put a you know put a break uh, put our foot on the brakes. I think that's probably a, going to be an effective tool. If they crash the equity markets, it's going to <laughs> be an effective tool. A lot of people are suddenly going to feel poor. They're going to spend less, less demand. Well, you're going to get less inflation. Maybe some people are going to have to find a job instead of being you know living off their options trades. So, I think that I, I think it'd be effective. I hope they don't do that. But in the past, I think that's kind of what they've consistently done. So in practice, if you think about inflation as just, just more and more money out in the system chasing goods, so you realize that, like I mentioned, when you hike rates and the government is the largest borrower and borrows overnight, that's going to increase the amount of money in the system. But the thing is, there are other ways to take money out of the system as well, other than just, just the Fed crashing everything, and that's through taxes. Now, one way you could actually solve this, I think, is just to have very punitive taxes. You know, you could just uh, raise, become, make the income tax a lot more progressive, add, add a wealth tax, raise capital gains taxes. That, I think, takes money out of the system um, pretty effectively. The thing is, it's just really hard to implement. Getting anything on tax reform done is very difficult um, in any country because, oh, well, we have a lot of entrenched interests. 
it's really the Fed that can act very quickly, but it's a blunt instrument what the Fed has, just interest rates to crush the market. So if it becomes, if the Fed becomes, I guess, if it becomes ineffective, that just interest rates channel, then uh, we could always just raise taxes. So um, if we have enough public opinion and we really live in a world where we have five, six percent inflation, I think it could be done. That uh, scenario where inf- uh, rate hikes really do nothing to curb inflation and they actually accelerate inflation, that just seems to me like such a kerosene on, on the fire moment because yeah. it's, like, it's like if there's a fire and Joseph, you're like, Jack, put it out, put it out. And then I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll put our poor kerosene on it. But for the, you know, the past 100 years, the kerosene has put out the fire. So I'm used to thinking about it. Um, you know, because Volcker raised rates and that that curb inflation. But if you're right and raising rates doesn't curb inflation, they'll do more of what's creating the thing that they're trying to prevent. That just seems like we'll cycle that. I mean, it's very hard for me. You know, I've always dismissed a sort of hyperinflation case. But like if there were a world in which we would get over 10 percent inflation, it would have to be along those lines. Right. It would be a, it would be a very different world. But we do live in a very different world today. We live in a world where, you know, we're doing persistent trillion dollar deficits. That's not a world that, you know, that, that I don't think any country has, you know, lived like that before. And it's, so we do live in a different world. So I think maybe rules will be, will be different or rather they, they are the same. It's just that you have to look at it in a different way. If you think about the channel of interest rates, hikes is again, effect, affecting your incentives to, to spend or borrow. Well, it doesn't affect the government, so right. And who's the largest bar? The government. And how does they how do they pay for their interest? They print more money. So it seems to make sense to me. Uh, it would be very revolutionary. So I, I I look forward to seeing how this plays out. Well, we have an example, Joseph, uh, today again on the Thursday, the December sixteenth, where the Bank of England announced it is going to raise its rates. So the Bank of England is doing what the Federal Reserve is now contemplating. What are you know? What's going on there? What you know? What are the effects of that going going to be? You think? Well, I think they've just went up just fifteen basis points, right? So they just went up a little bit, nothing really. But it's really about. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that yeah, it was a surprise. But the Fed doesn't like to surprise markets. But I'm not as familiar with the Bank of England. I think it matters more about the trajectory and the terminal rate is really what matters most to markets and. Um, I think what we're seeing just across the, the, the global central banking community is just a pivot towards more restrictive monetary policy. We saw that in emerging markets first, you know, things like Mexico, for example, have been hiking for some time. Um, and now we just have the developed market joining and it looks like everyone is joining except the ECB who promises not to raise rates next year. Um, so I think it's just a global pivot, realizing that inflation really is a global problem. Obviously, if you think of inflation as being caused by enormous amounts of coordinated global stimulus last year, then it's going, and of course, supply chains are global, then it's going to be a global problem. And so everyone is going to react to that. And, and then uh, we also have some news from the, the ECB. They are planning to go ahead to forestall their, their PEP program early on 2022, but they are doing a temporary temporary bond bond buying. What, what, do, you, what do you make of these uh, decisions that are going on in Europe? So the ECB is in a very difficult spot it's because, you know, it's they, they have different sovereigns, right? So it's it's 
from, from my perspective, and, and I'm not an expert on, on European politics or the ECB, it seems like the ECB is basically what's holding the European Union together. Um, if not for the ECB, now I'll, I'll tell you, so if not for the ECB, they, these, each European sovereign would trade at different rates, right? So they, they'd be spread to each other. So that, that kind of is what they used to call re-denomination risk, which is a risk that maybe uh, someone would leave the European Union and you would uh, get, let's say, Italian lira instead of euros. So that that's um, that that's that's kind of the problem they have there. And the only way they can hold it together is if the ECB keeps buying and kind of keeps the whole thing glued together. So whereas everyone is moving towards more hawkish means the ECB is not, and I get the sense that they probably can't. If you want to institute lockdowns to destroy your economy, if you have this political fragmentation risk, then you kind of have to be there trying to hold everything together. Uh, Joseph, when I heard the term taper tantrum about 2013, I sort of assumed that, oh, stock market must have taken quite a, a hit, uh, the U.S. stock market. But I, I was looking back at it, and the U.S. stock market was pretty much fine. I mean, it was, just, was a little choppy. But the real pain that you saw was in, as you mentioned uh, earlier, emerging markets. And that's what I'm thinking of now, uh, even as... Uh, you know, uh, credit spreads have remained low. We have seen the dollar rise uh, since about March. To what degree is that a worry uh, for the Federal Federal Reserve? So this depends upon why it's rising. I mean, the dollar kind of acts in a way where when things are really good in the U.S., then you have a strong dollar because you have global capital flows into the U.S. And when the world is really in a tough place like it was last March, then you have a flight to safety to the dollar as well. So that, that does matter why. Right now, if I look across the world, I look at our markets, it seems like we have a huge boom in the US. You know, real GDP is growing at a very high rate. Stock markets just exploding higher. So I would think of that as capital flows, just kind of driving the dollar higher. Also note, of course, we are on track to raise interest rates, whereas the ECB is not. A lot of the dollar strength is between the euro and the dollar. So you can have uh, interest rate differentials and an economic growth here, driving more flows into the dollar. Now, that is, so I think what's driving dollar strength is positive. Uh, that being said, the dollar is the world's currency, reserve currency. So when you have dollar strength, that's usually, um, I think, not good for, for global growth, especially in the emerging markets. Uh, the reason being is that a lot of people borrow in dollars. And so when the dollar is strengthening, then you know their, their liabilities, their debt becomes more valuable it hurts their net worth in emerging markets. So that's more of a problem for people outside of the US, but for the US itself, it seems like uh, dollar strength is caused by positive developments. Mm. And another potential worry showing a, a tightening of financial conditions would be the flattening of the yield curve that we've seen since March. We're talking about the treasury yield curve, uh, but also some some the flattening of the euro dollar curve. Uh, of course, th those are flattening after it saw a huge steepening, um, you know, uh, uh, up up until March. Uh, to what degree do you think the Federal Reserve is worried about a flattening of the yield curve? You know, they want bond yields to be low; it's good for asset prices. But also, it shows that the, the bond market is sort of pricing in a slowdown in growth. I think that's a really good point. I think we are accustomed to looking at the yield curve and trying to take economic signals from it. In, in my own view, I think that's more and more difficult to do. And so it doesn't necessarily mean anything. 
And the reason for that is that people buy treasuries for just a wide range of reasons. It's not necessarily a view as to where inflation or growth is. It doesn't necessarily send worrying signals. So it could be, as Powell was suggesting us today, you got a lot of people in Japan and Europe, they're facing negative rates. They just want to buy treasuries because it's better than negative, not necessarily because they think that, well, the U.S. is at one and a half percent. So the U.S. Treasury is, let's say, one and a half percent low growth, low inflation. It's not an economic view. It's just uh, according to their opportunity cost, their mandate restrictions. This is the best they can do. Um, you can look at, let's say, commercial banks. Like I mentioned before, they're facing five basis points IOR. Instead, they can buy treasuries and you know make make a lot more. So people buy treasuries for all sorts of reasons. It's it's not. I don't think of it as a market that has, uh, you know, market signals any more than let's say you look at Tesla stock and think that you know Tesla revenue and profits are going to go to the moon. It's yeah. So Joseph, you're not you're not you're not saying, but the bond market is telling you that there's <laughs> going to be a depression. I don't. I Joseph, think that... come on. Tesla, GameStop, the stock, the stock went from four to four hundred. Joseph, clearly, it's the biggest stock opportunity in the world. I'm thinking it's no, pricing no, in. Obviously, the bond market is still smart, but it's. To, you're saying it's still smart money, but it's just less smart money than perhaps it used to be. It's not that it's not it's not necessarily dumb money. It's just that money that has um, that has like a, a different investment framework. It, if you if you're just thinking about your standard macro investor or something like that, oh, okay, so uh, I have my model. It's uh, growth plus inflation equals X. So I'm going to price my treasuries off of that. There are people who do that. But if you are a European investor, oh my gosh, I have negative rates. So this is not negative. So I'm going to buy this. Okay. If you're a bank, I have five basis points at the Fed or buy treasuries. You can buy that. Or if you're a sovereign wealth fund and you're like, oh, okay, well, I have dollars. I've, I'm basically, uh, I can only buy treasuries or other treasuries. So I'm going to buy treasuries. Or if you're, let's say, um, uh, let's say you're like, a, I, I, um, like, yeah, what is it? target day fund, you have more inflows yeah. and you're just buying treasuries because you know, you have more inflows. So people, it's not like they're not sophisticated. It's just that they have different investment frameworks that don't involve any, uh, any insight about the fundamentals of an economy. So they don't care. And if they don't care, it's not in the price. Wait, so Joseph, you're, you're telling me that the average buyer of treasury bonds is not George Soros, who has a perfect uh, grid model of growth inflation. No, I don't think so. In fact, I mean, not think about it. The Fed is just was just recently buying eighty billion a year, so it's too many people buy treasuries who don't even care about the. Uh, are, are, so for a market price to have contained information about economic fundamentals, some investor has to put it there, put it inside based upon what they think. But that's just not what's happening. So I think if you look at treasuries and trying to divine what they're saying about the economic conditions, you I think you will be disappointed. Do you think it becomes? more distorted over time and you know distorted distorted relative to what it used to be but uh do you think it will be distorted for the next 100 years in which case what used to be was quote distorted right yeah i i i don't really know how how this ends it, it does seem like everything is just becoming uh, you know if you look at just the big broad just not just look narrowly at the markets but look at a bigger picture right so we're have becoming more and more into like a kind of a centrally planned economy. So you have all these mandates and restrictions as to uh, what people can buy and so forth in, in the market. So uh, 
just becoming the free market signal is kind of not there anymore. And you can see that in, let's say, in public discourse, what you can say in schools or what you can say on Twitter or what you can say on YouTube. So there's there's kind of more or less and less of a signal as to what, what's actually happening in the world. So I think that maybe it's just kind of becoming more and more command economy style. So um, mm-hmm. you can think about, for example, just on a micro scale, the, the, the Fed, right? We used to have, let's say, free market interest rates in, in the at least not free market. So free trading and say overnight interest rates. And now it's command economy style. Fed is lending at this, Fed is borrowing at this, right? So um, you look at, let's say, Japan or Australia experimenting with yield curve control. The authorities say, this is going to be the 10 year, or this is going to be three year, this is going to be the 10 year, and you will accept it. You know, so it's kind of a global movement towards more and more centrally planning. So if you, you want to have a good indicator as to um, what what's actually people actually thinking, what's actually happening, I think it's becoming more and more difficult. I mean, can you tell me, let's say, what kind of research is being done on, let's say, uh, pandemic stuff? I mean, it's hard because if you have a wrong narrative, you disappear. People never heard about it. So, um, so I, yeah. I think that's kind of just a, that's a huge problem that has a potential for some enormous policy errors because there's no feedback mechanism there. I'm so glad you mentioned yield control. That's where I wanted to end this. People by now should have a rough understanding of quantitative easing, uh, raising rates, lowering rates. Um, but uh, yield curve control, how is that managed? Basically, you're not just controlling the short end of the curve. You're controlling everything. Uh, Japan has done it. As you mentioned, Australia has experimented with it. How does, does that happen? And correct me if I'm wrong, but the United States, we have not done that since World War II. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. So uh, back then, to help with the world worth, the, uh, the the interest rate curve was, was pegged. So I think of yield curve control as basically a more elegant way of doing quantitative easing. If you think about the goal of quantitative easing as reducing term premium, what, what you're kind of, the way that I think of it is that the Fed wants longer term interest rates to be lower, but it also doesn't want to destroy the market. So it's kind of going to put its thumb on the scale, buy some treasuries, let the risk, let the market sort it out. So, but there are some side effects for this. Maybe it don't work. Maybe, for example, what's happening right now is that, you know, when you are fed and you're doing QE, you increase reserve balances, deposit liabilities in the banking sector. That makes the banks push against their leverage ratios. It's a side effect. It's, you know, it's not intentional. So there are some problems in the implementation of quantitative easing, whereas yield curve control, it's a much more elegant way. So, you know what, I'll just tell the market, I want 10 year treasuries to be X, and then no one is going to challenge the Fed, right? The Fed is infinite amount of money. So you don't have this side effect of banks having big balance sheets, and you also don't have to worry whether or not it'll work. The downside is, of course, you no longer have any free market signals. QB, you still have some when you do yield curve control. You have no idea what the market is thinking. What what are the okay? So, no freedom. Obviously, that that's that sounds very ominous. But in terms of practical applications, what are the negatives? You know, no no freedom is, is kind of uh, it's it does it's hard to quantify. No no freedom. So I guess low uh, yield, yields are pegged. So that's good for asset valuations based on credit spreads, uh, um, discount rates, and the like. Um, people who own treasury bonds or, or own part of the yield curve. 
they uh, it's not a market doesn't really go up or down but they're getting a certain coupon their yield could be very low it could be extremely low could be negative if you take into account inflation but they're owning it based on their own volition right i mean the only there is there is yield curve control where the the federal reserve or the 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 central bank or the uh government forces banks to hold sovereign debt on their books but that's slightly different right so yeah, I mean, you're right that people could just sell treasuries. So, but you know, like you mentioned, there there are a lot of mandates and restrictions as to what you can or cannot hold. If you're a pension fund, you know they're going to encourage you to hold treasuries. If you're a bank, they're going to encourage you to hold treasuries. If you are, uh, even if you're like a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they're going to encourage you to hold treasuries. You have, you know, retirement funds and so forth. So, it's there still be demand for it. It's well, I guess it's not any. Maybe just slightly more disruptive than what it already is. Mm, mm, wow, uh, Joseph, I literally could ask you questions about this for ten hours. Uh, that I don't want to impinge on your time. I don't know if people people would want to uh, watch that. Um, it, this is stuff so complicated. I feel like even though we've gone really in the weeds, I feel like I have only um, scratched the surface. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. I hope uh, everyone watching this found this uh, v- valuable. I'm, I'm sure they did. And if they want to learn more, definitely uh, you can check out Joseph's writings on uh, fedguy.com, at fedguy uh, for, is, you, is there at fedguy, you have a number? Uh, at fedguy12 is my Twitter login. Fedguy.com is the website. And if you're interested in plumbing, so you can check out my book. So what this actually is, uh, so on the open markets desk every a graduate student goes through what we call a cross-market monitoring training. It's where we give an overview of basically the financial markets, how the Fed operates, stuff like that. It's basically my version of this. So it's aimed to teach you about the mechanics of the monetary system, as well as to understand financial markets more broadly. So uh, check it out on Amazon.com if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, got the book, as you can see, and it definitely helped me prepare for this interview. I would have been I would have been screwed if I didn't read it. So I, I, I recommend it. Um, Joseph, thank you so much. I'd love to have you back on uh, Forward Guidance uh, sometime Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Jack. Really love your show. Love the guests to bring on. I, I watch it and, you know, I've learned a lot as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And, you know, maybe next time I'll, I'll take your uh, take your bait and we'll talk stable coins. <laughs> <laughs>